Welcome to Transfers Uncovered, the podcast. We're back in the studio for a new edition of the show in that hinterland period between the January transfer window closing. And as we sit here now towards the end of March, the end of the current season, very much on the horizon now. So we thought it'd be a good idea to get another podcast out there, very much really because we had so much feedback and positive comments from the mini-series that we produced for you back in January. If you are a first-time listener, let me introduce you to our guests through the series, Phil Corklin and Brian Howard from Momentum Sports Management. Football industry experts, agents, very much more than that as well, though, player representatives and mentors, and in Brian's case, someone who had a pretty successful career as a player too. Welcome back. We hope you enjoy episode four. Fellas, welcome back. It's been a couple of months since we recorded our first episode three, and uh, First of all, I don't know about you, but I was really surprised by the response, the very in a nice way, the response that we got on social media. Really, a, a lot of you know, good positive feedback. Yeah, I think I was definitely shocked a bit. Of you know, I'm not really one for a big social media presence or or anything like that. But you know, it's been great some of the feedback we've got. What I found the the response has been very good in the fact that people have found that a real interest in actually what we do, the kind of area that we work in within football. I think. Sky Sports News always talks about Mino Rayola and George Mendes as the the agents or super agents, but nothing's really talked about what we really do in behind the scenes and how we support our players. So I think people have really taken a real interest into how we work in football. We're recording some videos of this pod. I can't imagine Mino Raiola sat in the uh, surroundings that we're in today recording this one. But it's been a couple of months now since the window, almost a couple of months since the window closed in January. So it's always interested me what the role of an agent is once that transfer window closes at the end of January. I've seen you guys have been getting out to games. You've even today had meetings with clubs. How? What are you up to at this this time of the year? I think this time of the year it is. Yeah, everyone's starting to look forward to the summer window now. Um, there's a lot of clubs that still their futures are up in the air, fighting for promotion, fighting against relegation. Um, so their recruitment teams are working hard and putting together lists of players that they would like to recruit for the summer. Some putting together lists for different leagues, so they may need to be very thorough. Um, obviously, trying to get budgets, they've obviously got to work out then which players that are going to be out of contract at their clubs that they they want to keep and offer new deals to. So, I think we're kind of doing that at the moment. We've got you know quite a few players out of contract this year that currently speaking about new deals for or trying to find them somewhere for for their future. When you see even now managers just this week a couple of managers have been sacked or party company with their clubs Scunthorpe, Yeovil does that help or hinder when it comes to helping sort of player contract negotiations and dealing with recruitment departments because from the outside looking in it seems like those clubs are almost going to have to freeze that whole process till someone new comes in. Yeah, I think it you, you've seen quite recently the European approach of a head coach instead of a manager. Clubs are now trying to bring the, the recruitment process far more upstairs in terms of the owner, the chairman, director of football, head of recruitment, whoever it is. They're all involved in the recruitment of the players or the scouting of the players. And then if they bring in a manager, yeah, the manager might have a, a certain type of player that he wants to bring in. He might have a couple of favourites, but the club will hopefully have their own ethos and style of play. And whoever they bring in as manager will hopefully complement that style of play um, and that culture that they want to want to have at a football club but in terms of helping or hindering our job I think it is difficult because I think 
clubs will definitely kind of put a freeze on pushing the boat out in terms of trying to make any signings early in the window. If they've sacked someone and, like with Scunthorpe, they've only appointed someone till the end of the season, then they've got to find another manager. And they've got that whole process and that's far more important than the players they're then going to look to sign. And then I think for players that are going to be retained as well, that's a massive worry for players. If their manager's just been sacked and they don't know who's going to take over, that's a massive worry for people if they're out of contract at the end of the season as well. Let's talk about January uh, before we move on. And have you guys worked out how many miles you actually covered over the course of that month and, and how many deals you got done? Uh, I just had a look at my uh, my mileage report then, actually, as we were, we were chatting beforehand. And I think it was uh, yeah just over 3,500 miles are covered in the month. And I think we've probably done about eight or nine deals, but which obviously we were very happy because it wasn't a, a hugely busy window in general. Um, and I think this summer there's a, a huge market of, of players that are actually out of contract. So even in January, a lot of the phone calls and a lot of the um, sort of initial conversations and meetings we had were even kind of geared up for, for more this summer than, than January. There was you know maybe one or two loans more that we'd like to have got done, but we couldn't quite get over the line. Um, but yeah, reasonably happy of, of what we've done in the window. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you find sometimes you walk into a club, you might be looking to do a deal with a player in January, but you walk out having said, we'll do that deal in the summer? Not personally, but I think you could look at maybe the Ross Barkley to Chelsea move from Everton, where he was injured and he nearly moved and didn't, and six months later he did move. There's a question that we've been asked that we'll answer later on in terms of when deals get done and um, when clubs are talking to agents and players and things, and I think there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that there's always a a fluid situation and teams might say well actually we don't have the budget now but if we do get promoted then we do want to sign someone so I think it's just us always being in constant dialogue with clubs really and anyone who follows you guys on uh, on Twitter if they don't they should because I know that you're one of the best out of the players agents and what have you that I follow out there at Momentum SM is that right right? at Momentum SM a couple of your players done really well this year haven't they Jacob Brown at Barnsley Ben Close at Portsmouth Interesting examples as well, because they're two players who've actually come through the system there into the first team, which is getting increasingly harder these days. Yeah, I think with both of them, we've you know I've looked after Ben Close now for sort of three three and a half years since we started doing this, and yeah, you know, again, myself and Phil been looking after Jacob now again for for a few years, and they're both players that we we spotted playing kind of youth team football and ones that we kind of had a real feel for that they would progress, but people don't see that for. You know, a couple of years, the work we put in and the guidance we've given them, and it's funny that all of a sudden they're both doing particularly well. And now different agents are trying to pursue them, and different clubs are obviously starting to be, you know, talk about them. But we've known about them for a long time and, and put a lot of graft into them, and feel we've helped benefit their careers. And you know, we don't go out on the pitch for them on the weekend, but we, we helped to to get them where they are now. That's got to be the best part of the job, hasn't it? To have somebody who you've been with since their days in the youth team, now first team regulars and important players as well. Definitely. I think you you try and help manage them in a in a way that the highs don't get too high and the lows don't get too low. So they're always working on even kills. So whatever happens when they go out and train or they go and play, they always know they've just got to go and play the game that's in front of them. And we try and help them. So whether they get sent off or they have some negative experiences or some difficulty in their family life, you'll always be there to just help make sure that everything that they're going through, they know they've got that support network. With the players that we do look after, and the type of characters we have, clubs also know that the type of player that we'll look after will be very resilient, very strong um, and work very hard. And I think with, with Closey and Brownie, they've both been really good examples of, of how really the, the work that they put in on the training pitch has very much been rewarded by their manager and, and, and they've gone and put the performances out in front of 
you know, big crowds as well. Well, as I mentioned at the beginning, we asked for loads of questions from people and I've actually genuinely been so staggered that it's been the easiest prep I've ever had to do for any programme I worked on because you've given me most of my questions. So I'm just going to move straight on to some of the tweets and everything. This started off, as people who've listened to the first few pods will know, as just a, I know, a bit of a laugh, really, a bit of an experiment, a three-part mini-series, but we've got back together really just to kind of go through. We felt there were so many areas that we still haven't covered and so many questions I'd answered as well. So... Uh, let's start with with Peter Taylor at Bury Me in Exile. He's a Berry fan on Twitter who's um, been very kind to us. So thank you for your comments, Peter. Uh, I know he's listened to the other ones already. He says, why do so few pre-contract signings take place in England, at least those that are announced publicly compared to, say, other countries? I think we talked about it on a previous podcast, actually, that Scotland seemed to do a lot of internal pre-contracts. So uh, Rangers signed two players, Glenn Kamara and Jordan Jones. One of them and then actually subsequently signed on a permanent in January because they were able to agree a deal early. Um, whereas I think Jordan Jones will be signing in the summer um, from Kilmarnock. Their regulations are as such that you're able to do internal Scotland to Scotland club uh, transfers on pre-contract. But in England, the regulations are such that you can't do English club to English club on a pre-contract in January. But as you've seen, Aaron Ramsey agreed to sign for Juventus to go from England to Italy on a pre-contract. I think it just so happens that in England... Maybe they agree deals, but they don't announce it publicly. Doing a bit of research on the article, on a few articles that I found on this question, there have been some disagreements over legalities of if someone signs a pre-contract and then were to get injured before the 1st of July when his contract would actually start, there'd be a question over legalities of whether he still has to do a medical on the 1st of July in order to make this transfer rubber stamp. So I think clubs are probably quite hesitant to do pre-contracts just in case there are injuries or other issues that may arise. They might discuss a deal and agree a deal but then when it gets to the 1st of July ratify it by doing all the paperwork and medical and then announce the signing. It kind of makes sense to me going back to the club I support Oxford I could I know the positions I reckon they need to strengthen in the summer so I'd hope that their manager would be thinking and their recruitment department be thinking along the same line so it would make sense I suppose to get deals done now if you can are there I mean without naming names are there deals you know that you know that have been done already or at least verbal agreements in place or does it just not really work like that it could work like that currently we haven't got anything agreed verbally with anyone we've obviously we've had conversations with people and that's our job to do it but yeah I don't think it's fair on some of the players the clubs that are interested in signing the player and obviously the clubs that they're playing for to get the player to lose focus of where they're at they've got a job to do to play for the club they're, they're playing for currently. So I don't really agree too much of that. I think one of the reasons, again, why it might not get kind of publicised is that you know clubs don't want to give away to other clubs with who they're signing or what they're signing or if they're trying to sign another player. You know, his agent will say, well, you're signing so-and-so. I know he was on that much money. My plan is to get that much money. And I think there's just so much or so many grey areas that could cause more problems than actually... Uh, be beneficial to anyone. A couple of podcasts that I want to big up that I know um, have been really supportive of us as well. The Not The Top 20 podcast that is out a couple of times a week on a Monday uh, and the D3D4 podcast as well out every Sunday night at D3D4 Football and they've actually given us one of the, the next questions I'm going to ask you. So the D3D4 podcast asks fans are always looking to get their, for there to be more transparency regarding transfer fees, agent fees and the dealings behind transfers. Would you guys agree that this needs to happen? And if so, how? 
I actually thought as a fan, I think that you always do want more transparency from your football club. But I think now, because football clubs are far more businesses than just a football club, there's so much more that goes into why you wouldn't want to announce that. So if you were to sell your player, your star centre forward for £10 million, your championship football club, you sell your centre forward for £10 million quid, and everyone knows it's £10 million. If you then go and try and sign a replacement, there's a premium on it. Um, because everyone will go, well, you've just got 10 million quid for your player, so why is my player not as good as yours? Like, we want 10 million for him as well. So I think, like Brian said before, there's so many grey areas in gamesmanships that people play that you want to kind of keep as many cards up your sleeve as possible in order to protect, get most value for money that you possibly can, I think. I find it weird as a journalist where you'll get the undisclosed transfer fee put out there when a deal goes through, yet it will somewhere or other always be reported that it's X million pounds or X hundred thousand pounds. I don't know if people then are just speculating or if somebody at the club thinks it's in their interest to put the fee out there as a, I don't know, some kind of like rumour or something like that. I think that some clubs actually, it's funny, it works in both ways. If you've just, if you want to prove to your fans that you're spending loads of money, you might then put out the top end figure. So I think when Theo Walcott went to Arsenal from Southampton, I think it was like 12 million quid or something. But the actual base figure that he went for was a lot lower. But then the rest would be make, made up on games and appearances and playing for England and stuff like that. So if you're Southampton, you want to go, look, we're amazing. We've just we've sold a player for 12 million quid. Whereas Arsenal might want to go, we've signed like an untried, untested player for 5 million. But if he hits all the targets, we might pay more money. So I think somehow figures always do get out there. And it's funny the reasons why people might want them to get out there. I think that as well. I think so many deals now are structured in so many different payment terms and paid over so many years and the player has to hit appearances maybe hit goals maybe you know hit so many targets for the fee to be maximized but then again you know other clubs don't want they might not want other clubs to know what those targets are because they might say well he's not hit that target if he doesn't play another game we'll be able to hit get him on the cheap because he doesn't get a new deal or the money you know like that so again I think there's benefits to know it but I think it's much more beneficial actually the gamesmanship and it'd be great for you to know your club what they're spending but you don't want your club to then not have the upper hand in the transfer market. It's interesting. I mean, so if if a player signs for a club for, I don't know, a million pounds, more often than not, will that actually be, what would the figure be? More like 200 grand up front and the rest in instalments? Or um, how does it normally work? Sometimes that's what kind of holds a lot of transfers up, is, is, the, is the payment structure. And I was involved in, in one last window, which was like that, and you know, it actually fell through really in the end of it because of the payment structure. I mean, the fee, the total fee was agreed, but the way the payment structure was put across, they couldn't agree. So the yeah, the, the deal kind of fell through. So a lot of clubs, obviously, if they're selling their star player, want all the money up front so they can replace him. But if someone feels they're taking a chance on a player, they will want to kind of protect their investment and make sure that they're, they're paying the, the right amount of money over the right amount of time. Makes sense, absolutely. Matt Siege asks, you kind of covered this with Theo Robinson and Posh Southend in one of the earlier podcasts, but do you ever push for clients to make moves for less money than they could get elsewhere? And how do you handle it if you know that they want to make a bad move? Our job is there to offer as much advice as possible to a player to enable them to make the most informed decision they can make for their own career. At the end of the day, we don't, relocate we don't live in a different house in a different city or town we don't go and train every day in the place that we're asking them to go and do that so we have to give them as much information as possible for them to make the decision for their own career and whether it's right or wrong and sometimes in the past we've had ones where we very much disagree with where the player wants to go but 
we've done as much as we can to make the transfer happen that they want to happen. If it turns out that it was the wrong move, then we're there just to pick up the pieces. And I liken us probably to a parent and a child where you can't go to school and make all the decisions for them. You have to just pick up the pieces at the end and then just keep helping them develop and progress. With us, in terms of a player maybe making a move for less money, I think, again, it's about us giving the player the most advice and information that's available to kind of say, well... You could move here on the most money, but you might not play all the time. Whereas if you go for a little less, but you're going to be playing all the time, then your next move will be above the one that you've actually turned down. I think you've got to look at every player's individual case and say, well, it might be a younger player who needs to go and play football. So take less money because it's actually going to help your career. It might be a more senior player that actually this might be your last contract. So actually take the one with most money because you need the money in the bank when you finish. You might have a family needs to support and look after. So you do need more money and you might not want to relocate. Um, so I think there's every different scenario and like Phil said there has been ones where we said we wouldn't advise you to go there but you know like I said you've got to go and work there every day and you know we've had a couple that we've held our hands up and said yeah you're right good decision a couple who've said can we say I told you so I think it's very much an individual case this is what I love doing this podcast actually because I mean the football fan and I include myself in this can you think being an agent and doing a deal it's just all about doing that deal and that's that but the player welfare side of it Probably makes up about 95% of what you guys actually do, doesn't it? I mean, I see you're out at games watching your players in, whether it's youth team matches, reserve matches, first team games all over the place all week. It's not just a case of you do the deal, then you're gone for two years till the next one needs doing. Well, I read a story about Marcus Bettinelli's father. Um, so Marcus plays in goal for Fulham, played in goal against Aston Villa in the playoff final that they beat Aston Villa last season. And I read a story about how his dad is a goalkeeper coach at Fulham, but he can't go and watch his son play. So I think even at Wembley, he actually kind of walked around the stadium. And I don't know if he went and watched a little bit, but he can't go and watch his son play. I feel like as an agent, you feel like that. You feel like these players are your kids and you feel like so responsible and so worried about every possible thing. Because say a player gives the ball away in the corner flag and the other team goes away and goes on the counter-attack and scores... Your dread, your feeling is, I know I'm going to get a message or a phone call from your client after the game because the manager's had a go at him and blamed him for that goal. And then the domino effect that can then go on from that, your your mind kind of thinks up about a million different possibilities of how your player can maybe get in the, get in the shit, really, for, for kind of one little error. We care so much about our players that we just want to make sure that we can do absolutely everything we can to help push them in the right direction to keep doing well and keep progressing. OK, Ben Church has got in touch. He's at Army11Jack. think he's a Swansea fan. How hard was it for you to land your first client? And was it a friend or family member? And what division were they in? I think our paths are, are slightly different where I kind of finished playing and, and I went to work for an agency and it, it was the, the last agent I had looking after me. He had a group of uh, young players already signed to him, so my initial job was to come on and kind of help mentor the younger players, and then kind of build my own stable up from there. You know, a couple of those players are still still with us now, so that that's great. My first one that I went and signed myself was George Maris. At the time, I went to watch Barnsley under twenty threes. Paul Heckenbottom was the under twenty three manager, who you know, next teammate of mine. I said I really like that player. Blah blah blah. Spoke to the player. I think he was out of contract with his agent. You know, he came over over with me, and he's now with us now. And you know, he's, he's been brilliant at Cambridge the last couple of years. And you know, I think this summer he'll get a decent move that he deserves and, and go and you know, play at the next level. You know, for myself, like Bryce said, with different paths, I think we kind of had to start from the bottom end, really, in terms of working our way up. And I think came across a player called Paul Semakula who we helped get a move to St Albans and he played very well at St Albans and I think that was about 12 years ago 
Um, and then from going to look at low and league, non-league, I then also signed, went to go and watch a lot of Arsenal and Watford youth team games. Um, very fortunate to um, be able to sign Samir Carruthers, who was an under-16 at the time at Arsenal. He was offered a scholarship at Arsenal, but they said if he could get a better offer elsewhere, then he's able to go as well, because he had Jack Wilshire and Emmanuel Fringpong um, ahead of him in the pathway at Arsenal. He was able to get a scholarship and a, a pro at Villa, and by leaving at Villa at 16, by 19 he'd made his Premier League debut away at Anfield um, against Liverpool for Aston Villa under Alex McLeish. From there, Samir progressed and went on loan to MK Dons, and then played there for two and a half, three years with Deli Ali and a few of the other boys, and they got promoted from League One to um, the Championship. He was out for a year with an injury. First game back for the first team was against Man United in the League Cup against a very, very strong Man United side. Then they beat Man United 4-0 at Stadium MK, which was a, a brilliant night from MK, then took him to Sheffield United, um, and he got promoted with them to the Championship as well. And I've looked after him for 10 years, and I'd say he's like a little brother to me because I've been... We've both been together through our individual journeys. It's just great to see people progress and I think we've got a lot of players now where you do very much feel part of the family and you want to support them and look after them as much as possible and it's not just a job, it's a lot more than that. So weird you mentioned Paul Semakula there because I working, was working on a documentary before Christmas with Leatherhead Football Club and he was one of their players at the start of the season. In fact, he was captain at the start of the That's season, brilliant. which is weird, isn't it? But yeah. the kind of two degrees of separation that you get... In the world of football. Very much so. Ben's got another question as well, actually. He says, are the transfers that take place in the first week of the transfer window ones that have usually been agreed prior to the window opening? The deals seem to move too fast to be done in such a short space of time. Because you do, don't you get that flurry on the 1st, 2nd of January where a few are announced? Yeah, I think most of those are lined up in January. They're more for the ones that, I think in the January window, as you've probably seen, it's clubs that... They might be desperate for a striker, desperate for a winger, desperate for a player that's going to make an immediate impact on their team. Or ones that, you know, they might have a goalkeeper or a centre-half that's injured and they're desperate to replace that position. So then ones are, are normally lined up. And you see, see, see kind of the early flurry in the first few days and then it kind of goes quiet really till the, the last week and you'll see you get one or two and then the last sort of two, three days kind of go crazy again. Eddie Lambert has got in touch. E. Lambert. On Twitter says uh, apparently Alex Ferguson's career advice to other managers is to pick a chairman, not a club. He goes on to say, are there any rules of thumb you guys have for young players? I.e., is a good, well-coached youth structure at under 18 or under 23 level more important than having a stellar first team manager? I think it depends on what age you're at, what part of your career you're at. I think it is very good advice. I think it's probably the only thing that would have changed is the modernisation of it in terms of whether it's a director of football, head coach, manager. And now you've even got people that oversee the academy. So you've got the academy directors and before it had been, they just rule from the 18s down, but now they rule from the 23s down. I think it very much depends on the pathway of the club, the vision of the club. Take like Luton or Barnsley, for, for an example. And they've got really good pathways from, even with their coaches, you've seen Dale Tong um, go from being an under-16 coach at Barnsley to now replacing the German assistant manager who was poached by Huddersfield. He's now Dale's now gone from the under sixteens at Barnsley to to become the assistant manager first team coach of Barnsley. There's clubs that always look within to kind of produce their players and promote their players and Barnsley's a great example of that. And I think you could look at Norwich where they've got a, a true sporting director in Stuart Weber and he's been brilliant in terms of producing that ethos of bringing really good low budget players from Europe. And then supplementing it with young players like Max Ahrens and Jamal Lewis as well. Yeah, I think that you look at someone like Luton. Obviously, yeah, Nathan Jones kind of built that squad and developed that squad over the last eighteen months, and then yeah, leaves and goes to Stoke. But they haven't changed their ethos. You know, Mix come in and 
Mick was part of that with with Nathan, so he knew the players, he knows what the club ethos is about. So you kind of look at clubs now that, you know, Phil touched on an earlier question about people have the recruitment set up now of that's the way we're going to play as a club. And then you have a head coach that they feel is really then going to coach and get the best out of those players. So I think when we try to advise our younger players, it's it's about where are you going to go and develop. You, you mentioned earlier we're meeting with a club today and it was about a younger player who needs to go and develop still. And we've met two or three clubs about him and we're not going the same way who's putting the most money on the table. It's right who's going to go and develop him into a better player. So that's the way we like to look at it. And you know, I think some people do it that way and some don't. But that's our ethos of, of our company, the way we want to try and guide our younger players. Mm. Also, there's um, there's some really good research that I can't go into too much detail on because I can't remember it all, but I think Jason Wilcox at Man City, Man City basically did a, a massive investigation into the ages and development stages of young players and they worked out that in one of the Champions League tournaments in the last couple of years, the most players that were playing in that quarter-final period, or uh, well, that quarter-final stage, most players made their debut at 17 in senior football. So... Man City then looked at that and thought, well, instead of loaning them out or keeping them within the structure of playing 23s, they've then bought a load of clubs and they'll then farm those players out to those clubs to get as much first-team minutes at youngest younger age as possible. And I think that's the kind of ethos we have within our agency as well, is you've just got to go and play as many minutes as possible, the best level, but in senior football. And when you get that and you're exposed to that, when the players then drop down to play 23s or youth team, they realise how easy it is compared to playing against men that want to kick you 10 feet up in the air. That just enables them to get mentally stronger, physically stronger, and realise what it takes to really succeed as well. Absolutely. I, mean, I remember one example of one player that I came across about two, three years ago who was with a Premier League club and got released, had trials with a couple of other Premier League clubs, ended up sort of going all the way down into to non-league. But now he's playing quite regularly in the Football League again through making that drop down where had he gone on to sign for an under-23 team at another Premier League club, yeah, he'd have Premier League club on his CV, but it's kind of not really a Premier League club, is it, if you're only playing under-23 football, whereas you go and prove yourself against men for a season, uh, your career long-term is pr- probably going to benefit a little bit more from that. Definitely. You look at the examples of maybe David Brooks being released, released by Man City at 15, going to Sheffield United, then playing in their youth team, 23s and then he went out on loan to Halifax Town in the conference within a year he was playing for Sheffield United in the first team in League One then the championship then Bournemouth went and bought him for £12 million so the proof's in the pudding Deli Alley was playing for MK Dons from 17 and was just given that platform to go and make mistakes make errors but just develop as an individual and then we can all see how well he's developed as well so I just think there's too many examples now of the England team in the World Cup 17 out of the 23 played in the Football League at one time or another in their career. Not the top 20 guys, they're very much an advocate of it and talk about it all the time. But for me, there's just so much opportunity in the Football League to go and show what you can do. And then if you do well enough, a team in the Premier League will come and buy you. Yeah, 100%. A Fulham fan, I don't have the name of them actually, said, I still believe the big deals are done way before we hear about it on deadline day. This is a conspiracy theory that I like. Surely players need to sort out schools, accommodation, etc., Deadline day is surely just about the drama, they say. <laughs> uh, I think a lot about the drama. I think, you know, Sky Sports and, and have, have turned it into a showpiece. And I think it's great. I think it's great for the game. But it is really hard to structure a deal in, in a short amount of time. I think we mentioned it in one of the early podcasts about Jacob Brown for enough going on loan last minute in the in the window. But that was just a loan. That was, that was quite a simple deal to, to get done. But we're talking about, as it says in, in the question, big transfers 
a lot goes into it, as we said before, it's payment terms, it's undisclosed, you've got to agree fees, especially if you're bringing, say, a foreign player over, you've got to move families over, you see, you, you might have to get visas, you might have to, you know, there's so many different things, so it can take a long, a long time. Um, I think a lot would like to get done before transfer deadline day. I think we'd all like to get a lot more done Definitely. and not be so stressed on, on that day. But I think you've got a mixture of both in that question where mm. there's a bit of drama to it and it is a, you know, it is a really good showcase for the game. But the big deal is a lot would have been agreed up before that day or close to being done. Yeah, I think loans are, like Brian said, loans are so much easier. Arsenal signed football manager favourite Kim Kallstrom, I think, on deadline yeah. day. And he was injured. I don't think he played more than a few minutes for Arsenal so I think loans are a lot safer in terms of doing it and if it's a risk and it doesn't come off then you've not lost a lot for a deal to get done there's so much work to be put into it sometimes the deadline's good especially in January because there is a month so you're not kind of spending so much time wasting your hours on the phone or in the car they've either got to get it done or they don't but I think sometimes things are dragged out to deadline day because maybe you've got everything agreed in principle but then if you're dependent on getting a player out in order to be able to bring a player in, the transfers can't happen until one gets done. So then, again, you're dependent. It's like buying a house. There's there's just a massive chain of things that you have to wait for the dominant, domino effect to take place, really. Good news. Only one more tweet to go. Bad news. They've given us six questions. <laughs> <laughs> Blade, uh, Blades Analytics, another great person to follow, actually. Sheffield United fan. He does a lot of analytical, yeah, loads of in-depth stuff, not just based on Sheffield United, but all across the divisions and really worth following some of the things that, that they dig out on Twitter. And I know, Phil, you're a big fan and they're a big fan of you as well because they've given us <laughs> loads of questions. <laughs> what new or new trend clauses do the boys see a lot of now when dealing with transfers? I.e., we've all played football managers, so incentives like like goals, assists, clean sheets, promotion, etc., are easy, but are there any nuanced ones? There's one that follows into the next question that he asked, actually, in terms of bonuses, and I think now teams are more looking at the togetherness of a squad in, instead of individual clauses. So I know of one team that was looking to get promoted. They thought, well, we should be winning every game anyway, because if we don't, then we're not hitting where we should be. But if we do win games and we're scoring lots of goals, then the team will get rewarded as a whole. So if they scored three three goals or more in a game, the whole team got a bonus. So it wasn't just a goal-scoring bonus for the individual striker, it was for the whole team, which I quite like because it meant that if someone's got an opportunity to square it for someone to score an open goal, or you shoot from a very acute angle, you know you're going to square it so the guy scores because everyone gets a bonus together. I think uh, maybe one different one that we've done recently with a player and it was a uh, team of the year. So if you're getting team of the year, luckily the player got in two of them. So <laughs> really? um, he'd done very well, but you know he, he had to go and strive to do that. So I think clubs don't mind paying the money when it's success. If players go and get promoted, they go and finish top goal scorer, they get their assists, get clean sheets as a goalkeeper or defender, you don't mind paying the, the bonuses and, and the structure. We're massive incentives in our contracts that we do with, with, with players and especially the younger ones, like, you know, if you were touched on, hit a certain amount of games and your money will get increased or your appearances will get increased or you'll get a renegotiation in your contract after you've proved yourself to be a regular first team player once you start so many games. And it keeps the players hungry. So we're quite good on that. There's other ones where goals and assists combined, you know, rather than just the games, because they're going to play the games, but they want results. So you want the goals and assists. And it's, it's quite clever to put into contracts little clauses like that. The team of the year one, was that one you guys insta- instigated or did the club put that one in it? I think it was actually, a. it got to a point where the club had a limit of what they would pay on a weekly wage. 
we all wanted the transfer to happen. So it was how could we be creative to to make it happen, but also make the player feel like, yeah, I might not be getting the basic wage, but if I strive and do as well as I should do, then I get rewarded in a different way. Um, so I think it was just everyone coming, like kind of putting their heads together and trying to come up with something. And luckily, it was able to get the player over the line, and, and he's done well since he's moved as well. Interesting. Did you have any weird ones in your playing career, Brian? Um, no, I think it was all pretty basic, really. Goal and and appearances, nothing too crazy. So. They're pretty boring, my contracts, I'm afraid. He's gutted because he did actually get in the championship <laughs> team of the year one year. So yeah, oh, yeah, I would have gotten that. And, yeah. and, uh, and they never used to do assists. And I think I hit double-figure assists you know, about five years on the spin. So I would have definitely made a few quid out of uh, assist bonuses back it's in the day. It's a shame you can't do retrospective ones, <laughs> like when you can do retrospective things with your tax bill or whatever. Yeah. On the theme of bonus clauses, uh, do you think that clauses such as points targets or promotion, etc., are better than individual targets in terms of moulding a, a team culture collective goals rather than personal but I just think it, it just moulds a massive massive ethos I think there's enough money in the game like Brian's talked about before there's enough money in the game you don't need to go and chase it any bonus that you do get as an individual is great whenever the boys sign for a club or a club wants to sign a player one of the first questions is always what's the club bonus sheet I know Brian kind of got more experience in that in terms of playing for a few different clubs but players are kind of obsessed with the club bonus sheet if, if they get promoted then they'll get a certain amount in the pot yeah and I think loads of clubs all do it differently in different cup competitions and for example when I was at Barnsley we had the captain and senior players you'd go and negotiate it all we worried about was staying in the championship so we negotiated heavily into there was a big bonus for staying in the championship the higher up the league we were the more bonuses we had you know if we were in the top two it would be a certain amount top six top twelve and then if we stayed up we, we would get a, a nice bonus we didn't think about we were going to get to the semi-finals of the FA Cup so right. the club earned millions and we didn't really get anything. So um, we ended up negotiating a little trip away at the end of the season. It was nice. I was going to say Vegas trip or something. Oh, no, it wasn't as nice as that. But it, was still, uh, it, was, it was a good Bob trip. Bob Regis. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was a fun trip. But um, loads of little things like that that, that need to go in. But I definitely think that a team bonus is, is huge. What I dislike about some clubs, obviously we won't name names on here, but some clubs say you have the 18-man squad on a, on a Saturday afternoon, start at 11 if you play 60 minutes, you'll get 100% of the win bonus. If you play 30 minutes, you'll get 75% of the win bonus. If you play 15 minutes, you'll get a percentage of the win bonus. If you don't come on, you don't get any. So now, for me, if you're travelling away, you're travelling the country, and you're the sub-goalkeeper, you're part of that team, you're part of that squad, and you're expected to be there on a, on a Saturday afternoon with your team. I know it's not all about just the bonuses, but yeah, the team is celebrating, and they're in the top two, trying to get promoted, and the win bonuses are really healthy. But yet you're putting all this work, you're travelling the country, staying away from home, being ultra-professional, and you might not ever play a minute, but you should be part of that because you, you know, you're warming up with the team, you're part of it. You're doing the shooting with the strikers before the game. So I'd like to see that change at certain clubs. Uh, that would be my personally that's what if I was still captain at the club then I would be heavily negotiating that to be part of the squad is there a point another blades uh, analytic question is there a point uh, when you think it's best to strike while the iron's hot on say an EFL player if there's interest from further up the pyramid so what he's basically saying is player A starts the season on fire scores 10 and 12 he's interested in a move but he's still pretty young and inexperienced so do you move him on or advice to stay and gain some more experience? If you look at Deli Ali, for, for example, I think Brendan Rodgers talked about it recently, about how Liverpool could have signed Deli six months before he did actually move to Tottenham. And I think if he would have gone to Liverpool, he would potentially have gone there as an under-23 player, which means he would have gone on an under-23 wage, 
gone in the under-23s dressing room and they had looked for him to develop in a certain way. It's not about money, but what happens is when you move on a certain wage, the expectancy level is set at that level. So if you if you go to Liverpool and you're putting five grand a week, you're not going to be playing in the first team. Whereas if you go to Liverpool and you're on 50 grand a week, you are going to be playing in the first team because there's an expectancy from the board that the manager needs to play you or get a certain amount out of you because they're paying you that kind of money. Um, so then when Delhi did get his, get his move to Tottenham, he loaned back to MK for half a season, although he got injured and didn't play too much a part in that. Um, but you can see he went straight into Tottenham's first team and his progression has been unbelievable. And I think there's just so many different examples of whether you should move or not move. And I think Brian's probably got the best example of when he was at Sheffield United, Carl Norton and Carl Walker both came through at the same time. Carl Walker had an unbelievable end to the season. I think he only probably played about 10 games for Sheffield United. Carl Walker and Norton both got bought by Tottenham and then Tottenham then loaned both of them out. They had Carl Walker as an asset, but they loaned him back to Sheffield United. I think they then loaned him to QPR, then Aston Villa, and then brought him back, and then his progression has been incredible as well. So I think there's a sweet spot in terms of when you should move and shouldn't move, and no one knows that. Only the history books will tell you whether, when, whether it's right or wrong, really. I think that's the crucial bit of the negotiation. On, you know, like I said, a, a young player from the FL to, to maybe the Premier League, and it is... Where, where is he going into the first team? Is he going straight in to, to make a difference? You look at Ahern Grant has gone in from Charlton to Huddersfield and, and been brilliant. Maybe other players have gone and not really done that and probably wish they were still at the same club. It might be one where, you know, Adele or someone where they, they're signing him and they're going back on loan for six months or, or, or Carl Walker or, or Carl Norton. Because it's all about still about playing football. We spoke about it before. If, you, if you're already at a Premier League club, you want to go on loan and play football. So if you're, in, you're, if you're already playing football in the Football League, why well, go to a Premier League player to not to mm. not play for for extra money? There's no point. It's crucial. I, I would rather a player if he says he's played 30 games in the EFL and he's done great, and he, the Premier League club wants to buy him. He's probably not going to go straight into that first team because he's, he's only played 30 games. For me, I think to really be an experienced player now, you need to play 100 games. Where then, you know, if, if a player has played 50 to 100 games and scored the goals and really developed, and he's going to go and really have a chance of affecting the first team of where he's going then you push for the transfer I think it will now change because the rules are changing from FIFA in terms of stockpiling players and being able to loan so many out but I think if you are going to be signed from an EFL club to a Premier League club the history books show there's some players that have, have got what looks on paper decent moves but then they're stockpiled by a club they don't get loaned out they're, they're playing 23 football which could be a bit stale compared to the EFL experience they've had in terms of playing in front of crowds and playing in a really good level that they get the move higher up, but then three, four years down the line, they actually end up permanently lower than where they came from in the first place. It's a huge balancing act in terms of assessing the opportunities they've got, looking at the pathway, kind of using all the other questions we've been asked in yeah. this. It's looking at the whole picture and trying to make as an informed decision as possible as to whether that's the best place for them or not. Yeah, I suppose it depends on the club as well, doesn't it? I, the two that spring to mind, James Madison to Leicester, David Brooks, Sheffield mm. United to, to Bournemouth. Had they moved to... A Liverpool or something, they probably wouldn't have played half as many games as they have. As it happens, they're both full internationals now, and Madison, you know, on the fringe of the England squad. Well, you look at Madison, and again, his pathway, he went from Coventry to Norwich first. Norwich then loaned him to Aberdeen to give him a very different type of experience in his loan, and then brought him back to Norwich. He then did very well for them, and then Leicester have come and bought him. Leicester have been very good in terms of buying players with that kind of pathway, because they signed Harry Maguire from Hull, who came from Sheffield United, and again, They've kind of looked at it and gone, well, you've played at this level and you've done well. You've played at this level and done well. Therefore, we're happy to kind of throw the big money because if you come in and do well for us, we're going to make an even bigger return on our investment as well. Yeah, Damari Gray as well. Yeah. yeah obviously, another 
young one that brought in who's you know brilliant for for Birmingham yeah. in, in the championship, but he's then gone and um, affected the first team at, at Leicester and made him better. But then you talk about the Madison one, like you said, he's he's gone from Coventry to Norwich first, then the loan. Leicester have bought him then for twenty five million. Yeah, you buy some of that amount of money, you're going to play in the yeah, first team. Yeah. Where if Leicester bought him straight from Coventry two years before for five million. He might have been stuck in their 23s. You would have played with Harry Maguire and Damari Gray, did you, in your career? Uh, I didn't play with Harry at Sheffield United. I missed him, he was, he was a bit younger, but I played with Damari at, at Birmingham, yeah. I remember seeing him come through there, quality player, really. Are you guys seeing more and more use of data scouting reports to sell players to prospective clubs? This again comes from Blades Analytics, he says, especially those who've maybe uh, not got the process in place at the club. I flip it actually and say that it's not really from our side. I think we, we use it in terms of looking at data for players and I feel it's our job to make sure that we know what data's out there and what, what it's saying about our players because if we're trying to pitch them to certain clubs, then we want to know what questions they're going to be asking or if they say something negative about our player, we want to know why kind of have the answer to the exam before like they even ask the question. So we do use it to a degree, but I think it's more flipping it round. It's more clubs are now using as much data as they possibly can get their hands on. When you speak to a head of recruitment, now the analyst is basically at the, I wouldn't say at the same level as the head of recruitment, but they're in different departments and they're so well respected because the amount of information they can provide is priceless really. And you look at Liverpool with Michael Edwards as the sporting director there, he comes from that background. So I think clubs are now realising how much use there is and how much worth they can bring to, to each transfer and, and structure recruitment department as a whole. Yeah, I think so. And they said, look, some of the clubs we have been meeting recently and you know, today, I was showing a thing on the screen and it was, you know, expected goals scored, expected goals conceded, how my player would fit into that team of helping see hopefully more goals mm. expected and less goals conceded. And just really interesting how people now specifically look for each individual position to make the team better on the data for what they want for that position. Yeah, times are definitely changing, aren't they? Expected goals is something you hear all the time at the moment. I love this question from Blades Analytics as well. Going to really put you on the spot with this. Who's the Daniel Levy of the EFL world, i.e. the toughest negotiating manager or chairman? Bill. <laughs> Brian Stanley <laughs> the window. Um, I won't name any names, but I think there's some clubs where... Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's fair enough that, we're, we're on the build up to the transfer window we can't upset that's anyone that's one bridge yeah. isn't it if yeah. you even yeah. hint at the answer maybe in it. September we'll answer <laughs> yeah. what, what deals we had done this summer yeah or a chairman that's left a club um, okay that's fine um, and, and their last one as well finally more of a, a topic than a question discuss the advantages of agents in football especially in the EFL where clubs may have no budgets for large scouting networks what positive role can agents play in helping clubs and players etc um, especially after some recent incidents there's been a lot of negative press about agents some warranted but ha having spoken to you through social media uh, he goes on to say there's clearly good people doing good work to protect young men and guide them through the crazy world of football that could also eat them alive I think um, the advantages to having agents are tenfold really I think the club can only do so much on a daily basis so they have to prepare for matches training there's not as much room for the pastoral care, especially the lower down you go. There's not enough members of staff for everything that they would want to provide. I think if a club's investing a lot of time and money into a player, they want to make sure that they're going to be on the straight and narrow as much as possible because there's a potential for them to sell them on as an asset or to make sure they're on the pitch as much as possible to perform for them. So having a good agent that's working in tandem with the club, I think is priceless because they know that we're going to be looking after our player, making sure they are on the straight and narrow and doing everything they possibly can to affect the, the team on a Saturday or a midweek game. I think also from a different perspective in terms of recruitment, 
I think also we're able to give a lot of information to clubs that they might not be able to get their hands on because we're speaking to a lot of clubs all the time and, and you just keep your ear close to the ground and you'll find out a lot of information that can maybe affect the domino effect in terms of other transfers as well where you can get real-time information to clubs. We try to be very proactive rather than reactive so the more information we can have of our players and share them with clubs like I said whether it be number one on the list number two on the list if a certain player there is left we've got someone to to fill the space Um, just that we don't miss an opportunity and potentially lose out on, on a deal for one of our players that we could have got done just by us being sloppy or lazy. Something I picked up on actually in an interview with uh, Felipe Moraes at Crawley. Um, he did an interview where he basically said um, a player bursary should be set up whereby say you're, um, you basically get an allowance of what he's saying is you should get an allowance of £1,000 per week until the age of 22 or 23 and the rest of the money that you might earn automatically goes into a savings account that you could only access at the age of say 30 to 35 or once you retire. Nice concept in theory. In practice, I guess it's a lot harder to implement. But do agents go as far as advising on how to financially make the best use of your earnings? Yeah, we, uh, we're quite big on advising our players. Like I said, I think that is a great idea. And there could be some sort of concept where a certain amount, like a percentage based, because someone like Dali Alley, isn't it? but they're not going to take £1,000 a week playing Raheem Sterling at 23 playing for England, being you know, a couple of the best young players in the world. Maybe a percentage goes into a fund that you get at 35 because when I was playing, I, I fell into the group where my PFA pension I get at 35. And now they've changed it to 55 for, or the government have changed it for tax reasons. So you know, a lot of players now finish between 30 and 35. They can't get their pension or their, their money till they're 55. What are they going to do for 20 years? Again, there is a lot of money in the game now, so people are should be sensible with it. And we just want to make sure that they are and make sure that they are using their money wisely. Again, they're all going to be high-rate tax players, so we need to make sure that they're you know, benefiting from all the tax breaks and possibly get with the right investments that's going to give them good returns on the money that's safe and sound so that you know, if they need a house, put it for a house, if, if they need money for whatever they're going to need in their life, but still have enough that when they come to finish playing, you know, that it's not going to um, really affect their life too much. And I think I saw a stat yesterday about the amount of percentage of footballers that go bankrupt or... So an even bigger amount in, in prison now, mm. former footballers, because you know, they don't know what to do. Uh, so I think there's definitely some sort of market for players putting money away, a percentage base that goes into a fund, a trust fund, whatever, that they can't touch until they're 35 or the date they retire. So I definitely agree on that, but you know, I'm not sure how much we, we'll get done. But we have financial people that, that we trust. Um, we don't just push them with one person because a lot of the time it's because people think we're getting something out of it. But we have two or three people that we trust and we get our clients to meet them and whatever they feel comfortable with, we trust all of those people, whatever they're most comfortable with, we, you know, hopefully they look after their money from. We're big on the other side of it in terms of players looking at educational courses, taking advantage of what the PFA offer as well. We had one player recently who was looking at the Cruyff Institute to do a business degree that he was looking at because he's injured and he wanted to take advantage of the, the most amount of time that he's got doing his rehab before he then gets back to playing. It goes back to giving the players the most amount of advice possible for them to make the most informed decisions, not just to do things for them so that then when they retire they don't know what to do. It's to just help them develop as individuals and characters so that then they're best positioned to to make really good decisions on and off the pitch as they get older. If you've got a really good relationship with a manager at a football club, they get sacked. 
Does that make it awkward for the next manager when they come in? I don't think it matters too much. You try and have a, a decent relationship with all the managers, really. And at the end of the day, your your players most important. I think the only time it could be a, a bit interesting if you'd turned down a certain manager before to go to a new club and then he turns up there, then that could be interesting. But I don't think it matters too much. And that is our job to, to try and get on with everyone and keep everyone happy, really. This is one that we talked about after the podcast in January because I was quite intrigued with quite a lot of loans were getting cancelled, I noticed, in the January window to the end of the season but hadn't worked out at their particular club so that loan got cancelled in January. Does the club that's got them on loan still then pay their wages until the end of the season or if it's cancelled is that done and dusted and then the parent club picks up their wages for the rest of it? I think it very much depends on the type of loan so if you've got a break clause like renting a a flat if you rent a flat for a year but you've got a six month break clause if you hit that six month break clause you're not paying any more for the for the flat because you're giving it back and I think that's the same with a player if you've got a a loan agreement with a break clause in and you've activated it normally you have to activate it in January maybe in the first two weeks of January, in order to allow the parent club to try and get the player out on loan again. And sometimes clubs may miss that period where they've got to hit the break clause and then they're stuck with the player. If they then said, no, like desperately we don't want him anymore, then they might have to come to some kind of arrangement with the parent club to, to do something on the wages because they've missed that point. Sometimes a, a player might just not be getting any game time and there might not be, be a break clause. There's a You can have a three-way agreement that if all three parties agree to cancel the loan, in terms of the both clubs and the player, then you can also cancel the loan. I think sometimes if a player, if it's the parties haven't got on very well and they're not very happy with the player not being played and, and it's just it's just not a great situation, there might be an argument over who pays the wages because it might be a bit more disgruntled. These days they're trying to have more legalities in it in terms of stuff put in agreement so that then it, it's quite clear for everyone to know exactly what they have to do in order to cancel the loan agreement. And then when I, another thing you see a lot at this sort of time of the season or in the January window, when a player gets released from their contract, it's got, say, six months to go. Do they get the whole six months paid up or do they come to a kind of a settlement on that one? Usually it's a settlement. Everyone's different. It depends how much a club wants a player out. It depends how much a player wants to dig his heels in or if the player actually wants to go so it really is it's, it's just another negotiation normally uh, there's no written rule or any rules in there to say a certain amount has to be paid it's more what you negotiate a contract's a contract so you need a, a, a way of breaking it and you also I think when clubs sign a player that has been released from his contract they would view it that they only want to pay them until the end of the season which might be beginning or middle of May depending on if they're getting the playoffs or not so they would only want to pay them up until the end of May the club releasing them says well We've actually got him under contract until the 30th of June, so there's another month and a half's worth of money that the player's going to be missing out on. So there's so many different arguments. And going back to one of the questions from the Fulham fan, um, I think it's very much about stuff might actually get down to deadline day because of the fact that you're arguing over two months' worth of money and who's going to pay it and how the player's going to pay his mortgage or work out if he goes to another club. He might get paid up less, but if he's going to go somewhere and play, then he's going to get appearance money and bonuses and stuff like that and make it up in different ways. All our answers, I think, just come down to just the fun and games of football and, and how the little intricacies might not mean a lot to some people, but then to the player and the agent and the club, it can be can mean quite a lot. So it, it does always get down to the nth degree and that's why stuff kind of gets done so late as well. Thanks again for joining us. It's been a, a bit of a logistical nightmare getting us all in the same place at the same time. Again, dispelling that myth that agents put their feet up once the transfer window closes at the end of January. But... Uh, 
hope everyone enjoys it and uh, keep that feedback coming and the retweets coming. And if you want to follow it, it's uh, at Momentum SM for the agency, at Phil Corklin. That's it. For yourself. Uh, Brian's not on Twitter. You can follow the agency. And I'm at Cy underscore Watts if you really want to follow me. But I'd recommend just following the at Transfers pod instead if I were you.